0: This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do you want to learn how to optimize your performance through spirituality? I have an amazing workshop coming up on August 17th and it's free workshop. You can join online and I'm going to dive deep in understanding and sharing with you principles on how to truly create effortless, action, which leads to effortless success, how to get out of the trap of the grind and the hustle, how to get out of the trap of thinking you have to work harder, trading your time for money, and how you have to put more effort in to make more money. I'm going to share a whole different reality and a whole different experience that I've done personally, and I've helped hundreds of entrepreneurs do the same thing. So in order to register for this workshop, please go ahead and check the show notes, and you'll see in the show notes right on the top, I have the link to register for the workshop. There will be a replay available for 72 hours after, so make sure you register to join me live on August 17th. Look forward to seeing you then. Hey, guys, it's Dr. Vic, and you're listening to another episode here on The Mindful Experiment. As this week, I share this awesome interview that I had with Nisha Fair, and we talked all about being a fawn. It's the title of her, her new book, and I'll dive into that in just a second. But what a great conversation we have. We dove into a lot of things about authentic authentic sexuality. We dove into fawning and performing in bed. We talked about the nervous system and sexuality, just the balance of the nervous system and men and women and so forth. When it comes to those kind of things, we learned how to you know, talk about how to accept our biology instead of trying to be more than that. And how women, it's very critical and important for them to be safe when it comes to physical uh, physical elements and so forth uh, and, and those kind of things. And this really hits, you know, again, get to a different element of what we normally talk about here on the Mindful Experiment. I thought it was crucial because, you know, there's different elements of our life and what we can do to elevate it. And I've always been told there's actually four needs to a human being. And a lot of times we think it's just food, water, well, four, five needs, food, water, shelter, and air, right? That's what I've always been told, though. Those are the four main, um, but- there actually is, I had a, someone tell me from a psychological perspective, there's actually another five, and that is is sex. We, humans are the only species in the world, um, um, besides a couple of exceptions for a couple of other ones, which I can't think of off the top of my head, um, that does it for pleasure rather than just procreation. So, really great conversation here. Uh, To dive deep, to tell you a little about Nisha before we get into the recording. Um, Nisha is an author, researcher, trauma-informed sex educator, and the founder of Soma Body Trauma-Informed Pleasure Work. She has been a trauma-informed teacher, facilitator, and embodiment coach for 14 years with thousands of clients in that time. Nisha initially began studying the connections between fawning and sex in 2016 to better understand her own experiences. She now works with almost exclusively with women survivors and those recovering from toxic relationships to Help them address fawning during intimacy and heal their relationships to pleasure. Fawn, When No One Looks Like Yes is the first book to ever be written about fawning in the context of sex and consent. In addition to sounding the alarm, fair attempts to answer the million-dollar question, how can sex and intimacy thrive in a post-me-too, uh, hashtag-me-too post-pandemic reality? part expose, part self-study guide, part memoir, Fawn is a rousing call to celebrate our authentic sexuality and to invite more intention and integrity into our sex lives and relationships, whether they may be casual or long-term. So without any further ado, here is Nisha Fair. Nisha, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Vic. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you on. I think what you're doing and what you're up to needs to be discussed more and talked about more. And it's something that we kind of hinder and don't want to have that conversation as much. It's, it's kind of like the conversation of finances in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I just I love when I can have a chance to have someone on to just talk about these kind of concepts and so much more. Um, before we get into all that good stuff, I want to ask a quick question. And my listeners know I, I like to get right into things. Tell me, how did you get into what you're doing today? What's the background story, your journey, to what led you to your book and all these things?
1: Hmm. Well, um, people ask me this a lot, and I always respond with how, how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll try to kind of give a zoomed out look with a more, more recent, uh, through a more recent lens. So I am a survivor. I grew up in a really turbulent and stable home and um, I really struggled in my relationships growing up. Uh, I was one of those kind of high achievers but really feeling like I didn't fit in in the world. I didn't belong anywhere and I was constantly scrambling to try and feel safe and feel accepted and loved and seen not just you know in my family but in my friendships and in my romantic relationships when I eventually started having them. I'm a bit of a late bloomer, so I didn't have my first boyfriend until I was 21. Um and as I was kind of navigating the dating and, you know, sex space as a young person, um what I think was different for me because I am a survivor of sexual trauma as well, was that I really didn't feel any I didn't feel a lot of shame around my history and I didn't have a lot of blocks to intimacy. I had a high sex drive. I was really into experimentation, you know, losing my virginity for me was this kind of opening to this whole other world. Um, And so it was a real freeing experience for me, which I was really lucky to have because a lot of people don't have a freeing experience for their first time. Um, But eventually that led me to uh, an abusive relationship, uh, one year of which was was marriage. It was a five-year-long relationship. It ended in 2014. And <clears throat> pardon me, coming out of that relationship, uh, I went from being this really big, you know, confident, exuberant person to a shell of my former self. And Not just that, I had completely lost touch with myself as a sensual being and as a sexual being where I was really, you know, excited and into sex and intimacy before. And I always have, you know, had this interest at the end of that relationship. I couldn't even touch myself. I was afraid of sex. I was afraid of men's bodies. I was afraid of dating. It was just this kind of panic that had been created by living in the war zone of that abusive relationship for five years. So I began to do this work in understanding my sexual history and really healing those sexual traumas because I realized that the kind of relationship that I want and I know I'm destined for, I couldn't have unless I did that work, unless I really dug out all of those wounds and thorns and let myself heal. So that's, how I got to this place and I started I've been doing embodiment coaching for about 15 years but I started to move off into the sexual well-being um and reclamation space uh again probably about six years ago when I started doing my own work in in pleasure stories
0: that what a story and it's one of those things where you know the 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 freeing part you talk about—it's interesting because mm-hmm. women who I've talked to have had conversations with us about in the past, uh, maybe on the podcast or just in my personal life, having conversations. It's one of those things that is very uh, in the back of their mind, even though they may th- in the forefront. You they'll talk about it, everything, but then as you dive deeper, like yeah, in the back of my mind, that that was still there, and it was not freeing. It was so scary. It was so this, yeah. and then you have this total uh, opposite experience. I think that's that's really awesome, and I. Um, probably was a huge quantum leap for you as what as your story was kind of showing a little bit.
1: Well, it was, I mean, it's interesting. I think part of the issue I think was that i had repressed a lot of the sexual trauma experience as a child, but I still had a lot of anxiety around sex and relationships. So when I finally had sex, it was with Um, you know, one of my best male friends and he didn't know that I was a virgin and he got really angry at me afterwards. I can't believe you did that. Why didn't you tell me? Like, "Eh, Whatever. But I was in charge of the experience, right? That's what was so empowering about it. And having talked to so many women since, you know, a lot of them get a lot of, you know, pressure in high school because everyone else is doing it or because, you know, they just feel like it's the right time. And, uh, I think it's especially difficult for kids growing up now. You know, I was a, I was a teenager in the 90s. Um, so, you know, we had the, the age crisis, which was terrifying. <laughs> um, but there's so much coercion that happens as a result of a lot of unhealthy messaging that young people are getting about sex and dating.
0: Yeah, and I can only imagine now because you're in the 90s. That's kind of where I was. Late 90s, uh, you know, uh, two, I was in early 2000 in high school, you know, night, late 90s, early 2000 in high school. And it was like, I, I, I just, I remember that we used to use AIM a lot for communication and so forth. In like today's oh, yeah. world, yeah, good old AIM and AOL, right? You had to wait. I'm mm-hmm. like I always, I always joke, those kids will never understand dial-up and how long we had to wait <laughs> to get connected. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> and if God. someone picked
0: up the phone, it was gone. <laughs> but
1: yeah, it's true. It,
0: but to think about it nowadays, I, I just can't imagine like, and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, to with, with social media and just so many different ways to connect. I, I what are some of the, you know, I, I don't know, what are some of the, you know, these, these, the, and not only for the teen you know, youngsters, but even like, you know, adults, mm-hmm. how much more yeah. complicated things are now compared to back in the day?
1: So much more, you know, social media has been wonderful for us. It helps us, connect with people across, you know, borders and oceans. And it it supports us to grow social movements and inform and educate and, and learn more about ourselves in a lot of ways. I think it's been huge in terms of supporting people to take ownership over their own mental and physical health. So that's major bonus, but the downside of using a lot of these medias and technology, technology generally is that they've been designed to trigger our nervous systems into a state of low grade activation. So we're we're not in stasis when we're texting or scrolling or interacting online, you know, we're interacting, we're ha- we're forming relationships from this place of um you know, nervous system activation which is a place of scarcity. So it tends to trigger our attachment wounds a lot easier. It makes us more fearful if you know whether we have Um, avoidant or anxious tendencies, attachment tendencies, those will be more likely to be set to trigger because the rest of our bodies are not coming back to ground when we're using these devices. So, I mean, yes, it's the issues that we're, we're contending with in the more modern age, in the 2020s, are far more complex. And I think, you know, it really... It really behooves all of us to take more responsibility over our bodies, over not just the food we eat and the content we consume, but how, how much we can protect our boundaries in order to protect our pleasure and our well-being, right? Because these notifications are popping up everywhere. We're getting emails. We're getting you know, tagged and linked and, and what have you. And um, it's really interrupting our peace in a lot of ways.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. This is why people get frustrated with me when they call mm-hmm. and they're like, I missed you didn't you took I I try to call them back. They're like, I called you like two hours ago. I'm like, That's how long it took me to check my phone again because I silent uh, everything.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. And
0: like what I'm like, they're like, what if there's yeah, an emergency? Too. Right? And I look and I say That's why you call my wife. (laughs) If there's an emergency, you call my wife. (laughs) Don't call me. Call my wife. What if there's an emergency with her? Well, don't, you know, there's, you know, I'm like, I have to find an app that has like a setting to where it'll like just make the phone ring, which Mm -hmm. I'm looking for. But anyway, it's so true though, like in how we're, you know, sometimes technology is supposed to make things so much more simple. uh, But in the essence, sometimes it's making things more complicated in some ways. Um, Yeah.
1: I mean, I think it's the thing with technology. You know, we're we're analog beings, right? And I think that while there are some great benefits to technology, we really need to lean into our analog nature and not let ourselves, not let our humanity be robbed of us in being able to live alongside or coexist with these technologies. You know, it's a both and situation, but really it comes down to, you know, having your own autonomy over your body and your lived experience.
0: Amen to that. No, I agree one hundred percent. Everything in moderation, mm-hmm. right? And totally. So I'm 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 looking at the cover of your book, and I've been waiting to ask this question. Oh, I think this is a perfect yeah. time. So Fawn, <laughs> talk to me about where did you get the name Fawn? I I was actually almost I was like I should look it up before I interview her. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to let this be natural. So then I just uh, be more curious. So you might, mm-hmm. where did the title come from and why the word Fawn and all that?
1: Yeah. So fawn is uh one of our natural human stress responses it's not even human it's mammalian there are a lot of other species that use this stress response to um navigate situations where either some other animal or person has more physical strength or social power so Within our cascade of, of stress responses, we actually have seven different responses, but the ones that get the most attention tend to be fight-flight. Lately, we've been hearing a little bit more about freeze. So that's one of our mobilization responses. Fawn is one of the stress responses that is more submissive. So we have these activated, very animated stress responses like fight-flight, which is When we come into hyper arousal and our stress responses that are more submissive, more sedate, quieter are things like freeze, fawn, flop. So these are still responses where our nervous system is activated to respond to stress and danger, threat, but it has, again, a, a more sedative quality. And the idea behind using a stress response like this or using a submission response is that somewhere in our reality, we've got the message. We've interpreted something about our circumstances that are telling us that if we fight back or if we object in some way, then we're going to experience more harm. So in our modern times, taking us off the savanna out of the tiger and antelope dynamic, we see this in hierarchies. So what's interesting about fawn as a stress response is that it is hierarchical and it's necessarily social. So I don't fawn at a falling tree branch or an oncoming car. I only fawn with other humans. It's really common if you grew up in um, a turbulent or authoritative household or in a really very religious household where there was a lot of top down children should be seen and not heard. You know, you must obey your parents, your elders. That kind of parenting ideology. Uh, we also see it in hospitals and schools. Anytime there is any form of a hierarchy between people, and there's an intimidation submission factor. So that's really when when the response, stress response is triggered. Now, I've been looking at it in terms of how we use the stress response in sex and intimacy. So the Stress response originate or the name font. I didn't coin that. That was coined by Pete Walker, who's a a practitioner and psychologist who focuses mostly on people with complex PTSD. Um, And it was coined as a way to identify the tendency for people to people please, or diminish themselves, abandon themselves, go along with things they don't want to do or repress their boundaries and authenticity as a way to try and get love or stay safe and avoid harm how's that
0: that is awesome (laughs) I love it I just learned something new okay (laughs) I knew how to relate to something I was like I have a feeling there's something nervous system would be related to this but I love the whole elaboration of there's so many layers to Mm -hmm. it in a sense
1: yeah it's, it's layered for sure.
0: And I love how it's, you know, you, you're, you're talking about my lifestyle where it's like, you know, you come from children should be seen, not heard. It come you know, very religious background, mm-hmm. this and that. I'm like, yeah, that was me. That was my life. That was everything too, yeah. right yeah. there. I'm like, Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and you uh, just, the, uh, neurology is like my passion being a chiropractor. It's just what we do all day, mm-hmm. every day. And, um, do you know why we call it the, 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 the fight, flight or fight or flight response?
1: Uh, well, is this, you're, are you talking about Walter Bradford Cannon and his work?
0: <laughs> I know you're going to, I'm going mine's way simpler. <laughs> no, I'm not going into that depth. It's, okay. it's more, I'll just break it down. It's more, you know, when we look at fight or flight, we're always like, Oh yeah, it's a fight or flight response. Most women don't have a fight or flight response. They don't react in that way. I know men that's, do that's for the most part. not always yeah. though. Right. Cause like me, it's like, it's men and female, right. That's what I first heard when I was first learning this. And then I'm like, but then I got deeper into neurology and I'm like, okay, what about right brain, left brain dominant individuals? Well, women are right brain dominant, men are left. Then I got into practice and I started testing that. And, and then I had a mentor of mine tell me, you no, know, it's about 80% roughly. And so when I started doing my own data, I go, holy cow, he's right, 80%. I would have some women who were left brain dominant in my office. It was about 20% of the time. And so then I was mm-hmm. like, interesting. I, and, and it's funny because the conversations I would have with them will be more like I would talk to another male just straightforward to the point, these certain things like that. And where if they're right brain dominant, I have to, there's a whole type of different conversation I'll have. I'll be more listening rather than talking or like if they, if a, if a left brain dominant individual comes to me and tells me a problem, they want to have a solution immediately. That's just, you know, more, mm-hmm. what we, they say guys are like that, but it's more, uh, left brain dominant, but yeah, the whole fight or flight is usually just from that aspect. So I was just, as you were talking, it was just coming up through me. I'm like, I got to share this.
1: Well, the the interesting thing about fight flight is that it was discovered by studying male bodies, and particularly white ones. And it informed, God, like 70 years of medical and scientific research. And it was only in 2000 that this tendon befriend response, which is kind of a... A precursor to fawn, fawn is what happens when tendon befriend goes into overdrive, uh, was found out to be the predominantly female stress response. So this was a whole category of lived experience, lived human experience that we were we were missing.
0: So cool. Because, I mean, like, even with women, most of the time they retract and go in and shut down.
1: Yeah, that's the tendon right? befriend Yep, exactly. response. Yeah, Yeah. But this is also, the other piece of it is that it's not just biological, it's also socially conditioned. So if we look at the way we condition young boys and young girls from early times, and this is also partly biological, you know, girls are taught to be nice, sit pretty, just be good, get along with everybody, don't make anyone uncomfortable. And boys are taught to like, go for it, punch the sky, go further, go faster, go farther, right? And so from a very early age kids boys and girls get this idea that uh, girls have to you know settle for what they can get and guys get this sort of sense of entitlement that they are able to or or expected to go for more Um, and this is we see this partly in terms of how we develop as young children so when girls the age of about seven start to go into puberty, and we get this boost of estrogen. We have a surge in emotional intelligence, in self-awareness and awareness about the world. And because of what we're experiencing in the world, we also get a sharp decline in confidence and in a sense of safety boys with their surge of testosterone, they will get um, boundary-pushing behavior, risk-taking behavior, and also overconfidence. So we have this really interesting um, complex where you can see the, the gender stereotypes are, they do have a biological basis, but our social conditioning then teaches us to, I think, really... Succumb to our biology in a lot of ways, instead of learning to be more than our biology, more than our evolution. No, and totally. that's really what I'm trying to get home for people, especially through this book.
0: I love that. No, you're, you're definitely. I mean, I mean, dead on. Testosterone has a way of uh, creating a massive drive uh, in many ways,
1: hmm. um, which we need, right? I mean, it's why course. we're here in a lot of ways. We need that competition and that, you know. But um, there's also the other ambition. side of that
0: balance too, right?
1: Totally. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Love this! I love this. Um, yeah, I lost my train of thought where I was going with this testosterone okay. and, and the we thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got me. Think, I'm just thinking because, like, in, in a lot of things too. It, yeah, there's just so much that that happens, in, in biology does play a role. But as you said too, though, it's it's you know there's there's a there's a point of that, but that doesn't become uh, the you don't use that as an excuse though right? We either that, then you don't evolve, you don't shift and change. We don't, you know, if we Mm -hmm. can change out of that, we actually will change our biology in some way, shape or form.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: And and, and all the research supports that. And so it's one of those Mm -hmm. things. And I'm starting to see that more in males, seeing more men groups come out, I'm seeing more things like this, but it's more about opening up and sharing your emotions and, and just getting more aware of yourself. and, And it's okay, you know, all these different things. And I'm just like, Mm-hmm. Yes, men need that because we're not we're not taught to, we're, the way we're taught to be men is what you're kind of explaining with the whole testosterone ride and all that kind of stuff yeah. and that thing and it's nothing about actually and I don't even want to call it men or women or this or even feminine or male energy because that still divides it's just being human we're just getting yes. to a new fullness of or full spectrum or well rounded uh, becoming more human in that way
1: hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's not fair to men that, you know, from such an early age, little boys are told not to have feelings or not to dance or, you know, act or whatever creative expressions they want to um, explore in themselves. It's just, it's, it's abuse. It's emotional abuse.
0: No, it is. I I can, I I, I know that for many different people and things of of that realm where it's like, Nope, you're a boy. This is what you do. And this, you play with this and not that you do this instead of this. And it's like, yeah. what if they're just trying to learn or express, or they just whatever whoever it is, who cares? You know, at the yeah. end of the day,
1: yeah, they're kids. You know, it's our we're putting our ideas of like what things should be on these like perfect little beings that are just trying to figure out the world. You know.
0: Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. So let's get into then. You know, we just come back. We just came through a whole pandemic, and in yeah. my world, more stress there is lower sex drive right more men are having ed at earlier ages and their drives are going down more and more uh, i saw it in practice you know and, and first i heard about it i heard a wind of it and i was like all right let me see what's going on but you know and i know that also affects women what has been you know you're looking how that has changed or how is that affecting intimacy how is that affecting relationships yeah. and I'll, I'll just leave that and we'll, we'll take it from there
1: Oh gosh, this is. Can we do another show on just this only?
0: <laughs> That's, I was. I was. So I, mean, I was like. I was like, it's such a loaded so question, big. but I'm like, I'll leave it here, and you just take it where you want to go.
1: <laughs> okay, so there are a few things. Oh my gosh, the pandemic has been a constant onslaught on our pleasure bodies. So I. Pleasure body is a, is a term that I've used to describe the experience of being in parasympathetic ground or um, stimulating vagal tone. If you're familiar with that language, I use pleasure body because it's experiential and you don't need a degree in neuroscience to understand what it means. So it's been a total onslaught on our pleasure bodies and our ability to feel grounded and safe in the world and ourselves and our relationships. Um, and when we don't feel safe, we run our wounding, we run our wounded patterns, and we um, find ways to avoid connecting with people because to be in connection requires us to be vulnerable. And if we don't feel safe, we can't be vulnerable. Um, so the pandemic has been it's been really hard on people, and I do want to say that you know the e d question with men, I think a big piece of it is stress. I think that A lot of the toxic dating culture is is, um, affecting men negatively. And I want to be sensitive to this. Um, A lot of men use pornography as a way to substitute not getting the intimacy in real time. And a lot of people have been using pornography over the past two years because there's been no dating or there's been reduced dating. People have been scared about, you know, meeting people in real life and all the cooties we have the COVID cooties. Um, so part of the issue of relying on pornography is that it wires your arousal system to the visual material, to the specific visual material, as opposed to the sensory experience of uh, having another live person in front of you. So I've known, you know, young, young men in their late teens and early twenties who can, you know, get rock hard all day long, as long as it's pornography. But as soon as there's a live human woman in front of them, they just, they can't, they're You know, our nervous systems are teachable, right? So we have to be really, really conscious about what we're teaching, our bodies, our nervous systems, our arousal systems, and ensure that we're wiring ourselves for the people we want to be and for the experiences we want to have, and not the coping strategies that we're perpetuating by trying to, you know, get through a really, really tense and overwhelming two years. Um, You know, I really like to bring people back to practices of building healthy attachment because, and this is really like, this is the easiest work to be doing in relationships. Things like, you know, loving touch, going out and having fun together, trying new things together, um, you know, having authentic conversations about new things, playing these, you know, conversation games, like we're not really strangers. It's a really good one. Really working on consistently trying to get to know one another because we're new people every day. Right. So I think a lot of those kinds of exercises or practices, even doing one one thing to nurture healthy attachment in a relationship every day will go God, like light years to supporting um, authentic pleasure. Because the reality is for most women, we need to feel safe with our partners in our situations in order to feel uh, any sense of arousal. Um, and to feel desire to have an orgasm, right? I, I like to say, you know when women feel safe and seen, you can't keep us out of the bedroom. And for most of us, that's true. You know I know so many women myself included, who like we're just like like rabbits in the beginning of a relationship, but then as soon as there starts to be these mm, ruptures that don't got, get effectively repaired, then the desire starts to come down because we don't feel safe and seen by our partners. So as long as we're consistently doing that work of remembering who we are, remembering who our partners are and being, creating a sexual and relational container where we can really grow and evolve together. I think we can really combat a lot of the issues of, you know, mixed match, mixed matched arousal and struggling to, to find orgasm and, and, Um, really fighting that sexual boredom that can happen between couples as well because long long long-term relationships are are hard on desire for couples.
0: I love how you brought up the element of porn because this has been something that Mm -hmm. has been, I've been hearing more about and and I've done some research in the past about how like porn messes up intimacy, intimate relationships. Yeah. And you brought that up to light and it's something that more men. And I say men, I don't, I don't know the research on women. I'm a male. So I, I know the, the aspect on the male side. And it's like, I was, you know, I had a friend at one time said he came out on a, a Facebook live and just shared that. And he has a whole men's group. And I was like, man, he's, he's sharing some real deep truths there. I was like, let me go look into this. I want to learn more about that just so I can share with help. If, if it ever comes up, I love knowing information. Cause I never know when I may need it. Um, and it, it is so true in so many ways. How, but the other thing you brought up too is how can then somebody who, you know, getting bored, creating boredom or having boredom in a long term relationship, especially on the intimate side of things, right? Because we get so into a, people sometimes get so into a pattern or just get comfortable with another or they take them for granted that's just like, oh, this is what we do and this is it and that's the end of it. How do you keep that fire going on the intimate side of things?
1: Mm. I, I have a bit of a different approach to a lot of, um, practitioners, because A, I, I really love to unpack the areas where intimidation, submission, that balance is out of whack and creating um, conflict in teeny little ways. We're, areas where we're drilling holes in our own boats, shall we say. So, first, we have to patch those. But then, you know, I really believe that who we are as sexual beings is necessarily and unavoidably multi-dimensional right that if and a lot of the messaging that we get or we see here in the world is like just you know get this lingerie or that vibrator or find this really overpriced lube and that's the solution to your problems or try more positions try more of this and the truth is we're all seeking a much more nuanced experience of ourselves as sexual beings want to be fulfilled not just in the physical on the orgasm level but to be seen energetically emotionally Um, you know I really believe that sex is an opportunity for us to connect with the soul of another human being and that's so special it's something that we don't talk about enough Um, and it's really vulnerable to do that kind of work So a lot of the stuff that I teach, and um, you know, I think I have the download on my on my website if folks want to look at, is really at breaking down all those different parts of ourselves and seeing how I can satisfy the creative part of myself through sex, the part of myself that wants to explore embodiment or nurturing or movement or uh, feel more grounded or nourished in some way, right? So we have all of these categories of the human experience and we can satisfy them all through our sexual uh, growth and and relationships as long as we, you know, really step back and, and invite ourselves, give ourselves permission to be a little bit vulnerable and go into, into the unknown.
0: I totally agree with you. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, you know, sex is more than just, you know, just the physical elements are getting to your, your orgasm. It's all about that spiritual element in in that aspect. And, and it can be, you know, I remember trying, there's a couple of thoughts going through my head, but it's one of those aspects of being able to, like you shared, there's so many layers to that. And there's so much that can come from that. And I remember in my spiritual studies, you know, studying, you know, uh, energy medicine and and the afterlife and souls and the purpose of a soul and all this other stuff. And one time they, 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 were, they were sharing that your experience of being a soul is at the peak of an orgasm. Like how we feel in that essence of joy and bliss and letting go and all those other things. That is your natural right. And I, I thought about that for a second because you you brought up multidimensional. And it's like, why is it that we as humans, and I think there's another species out there you probably know better than I do. I think it's, I don't want to say, I don't want to say dolphins, but there, I think it is dolphins. But um, we're the only ones that do it for pleasure on top of also procreating while well, everyone else in nature mostly does it just for procreating.
1: Mm-hmm. Bonobos too. Bonobos do it for pleasure and for... Um... Uh, managing stress in you know relationships, and in that way, it's actually um, there's no, how uh, should I say? There isn't like it's not male female always, so it could be like female female, male male. It's it's a it's a, a way of regulating one another's nervous systems, which is true. You know, sex and pleasure is is incredibly regulating for our nervous systems, very supportive too. Um, finding parasympathetic ground and getting us to that that place where we're open and able to connect meaningfully with one another and ourselves.
0: Do you think too, sometimes like, you know, we live in a world that's all about the visual and just visual, visual, mm-hmm. visual. I Me, mean, I was taught as a man, my growing up, it was, you know, you're, I never knew I was objectifying women. You know, you look at them and you see them as a certain way. If a woman has a certain body, like, yeah, this is, oh yeah, look at that. Look at this. And then it's like, as I got older and I evolved and learned and got away from that, I was like, hold up. No, that, that's, that's, that, that, that means that's nothing. It's the person that you're looking at. It's the essence of who they are mm-hmm. and all this. And I started understanding it in my early 20s. But it, it's, um, do you believe that also that leads a role, And it's not just in males. Uh, it's also in females, too, um, where this whole thing on visual, visual, visual context can also be messing with us in some way, shape or form, especially teaching our nervous system or all these different things.
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, we are visual creatures. It's one of our senses. Um, It's, you know, our visual sense is also really extremely stimulating. And that's why I think we get such a kickback from visual media, from, you know, it's like that kind of main line to the brain is through through your visual sense. Um, I mean, I think that part of the... That that objectification, if you want to go there, is that, especially now with toxic dating culture and hookup culture and the commodification of sex and bodies, is that we are taught that the way to get that social approval for being for of sexual prowess or sexual experience, because that's how we have sexual value, right? is by how much experience and how many people we've been to bed with and all the all the provocative acts that we've done the way that we get that approval from our friends or society or what have you is by using other bodies right so this objectification isn't isn't just visual it's a kind of it's a it's kind of a colonization really that we are trying to consume other people's physical forms in order to feel safe and, and accepted in the world. And that's really, um, it's super harmful, obviously, but I think that if we can dismantle that little piece, we can do so much to solve a lot of the toxic dating issues that, that we're seeing in the world today.
0: Totally. I love that. I love how you you share that. And it's in, you know, looking at, so let's talk real quick, toxic relationship you mm-hmm. bring that up. What are some yeah. ways we can get away from that? What are some ways that we can, you know, in what, what are, the, well, let's go, let's take one step back. What are the signs of toxic yeah. relationship? And then also what are the things that, you know, we can do then to solve that?
1: Do you want to do toxic dating or toxic relationship?
0: Oh, sorry. I meant toxic, sure. uh, toxic okay. dating. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> we may get into toxic relationships, but let's go to the dating. Yeah. I
1: mean, it all kind of toxic dating becomes toxic da- relationships. You know, it's all part of the same the same the same jam um, so if there's something I wanted to say about that just before I clarified it, it's gone out of my head um so the issue with toxic dating let's define it so things like I'm gonna list off a whole bunch of terms here some people may be familiar with I can give some definitions things like breadcrumbing house planting um, cushioning is another one so these are tactics that all genders are using. Women seem to complain more about them for men, but I know that, you know, women ghost men and women ghost women and men ghost men. It's just, these are ways that we've used to get around having to be authentic, first of all, but second of all, having to meet ourselves in our own pain and witness the pain of someone else. So it's really the effect of not having or having a society that has very little emotional intelligence. Um, so we've kind of created this mess ourselves. We are, we are our own worst enemy. <laughs> um, so that's sort of the, on the low end, what we're seeing. And there's also the kind of, you know, like flaking on dates and not responding to emails or messages or what have you um, on the more damaging. And we see things like stealthing, um things like a lot of sexual coercion there's a new trend of fetishizing a woman's objection or her no during sex which is really dangerous um, and then another really thing that's that's scaring me a lot is um trafficking that's become this kind of really sneaky um but but very present um, poison. Really And it's not just men that are trafficking women, girlfriends are trafficking their girlfriends, and this is happening with young people, especially. So um you know, we're really talking about what happens when you expose young people, all people who have very low emotional intelligence and therefore and body awareness really, and therefore poor boundaries, poor sense of boundaries, um, kind of like throw the whole sexual Gamut at them and say, go and have a party, have fun, <laughs> right? We kind of open Pandora's box, and um, none of us, or very few of us, actually have the relational skills, the emotional skills, and the interpersonal skills to be able to manage them because we were never taught, right? All of us, I'm sure, you know, growing up in a religious household, um, you know, I was taught at 13, there will be hair. That's all they said to me when I got my period. My mom handed me a pad. Didn't even look at me. It was just like, no, we're not gonna go there. Um, You know, there was no, there was no talk about it. It was, you know, we do not prepare our children for being well-adjusted adults who can have healthy relationships and sexual sexual encounters with one another the other piece i want to say and i think that like this again would like change everything if we could just have compassion for one another if we could remember that like you were you know to follow on your point earlier that we are human beings that we all have histories and we've all been wounded and hurt and we're all just doing our best if we could just remember to have compassion for the people whose bits we're bumping up against um we would be we would be streets ahead of where we are
0: I I couldn't agree with you more on any, all of this. And uh, I could totally relate to you. I didn't even get a talk or an explanation or anything. So Mm -hmm. I'm with you on that. It was one of those things you just got to figure out (laughs) on your own and you're like, what's going on here? You know, and this and that it's like, what's happening. You just, and your friends don't know, and they're not getting much information. So you're like, "Uh, (laughs) I don't know what to do. I'm just going to have to figure this out on my own.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so now we have that same, you know, most parents are still, I think we're better now we're a lot more educated. We know that it's important to teach kids about this stuff early on. But, you know, young people are still going to, to pornography and, um, and other places, other erotic media uh, to learn about what sex is. And so when pornography is becoming ever more violent and provocative and, um, you know, in some cases, abusive towards women and men, you know, that's what they're learning. That's what they're learning. There's this whole new trend now of non-consensual choking. People are just like choking each other out in bed, putting pillows over their faces, like, and it's like, oh, but I thought this was a thing now. Right. It's like, well, you have to ask someone if they like it for
0: starters. So interesting.
1: <laughs> right? Because they're seeing it. They're seeing it on on, you know, on whatever videos they're watching. So it's like, okay, this is what we do now. No, it isn't actually.
0: That is so interesting. Yeah. Um, my wife and I mm-hmm. joke sometimes about even just in the dating world and we'll talk like some of the, the, the trends that go like, she's more up to date with that. I'm so clueless with all this stuff. Uh, of what the trends are, but You're better off. I, 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 for some, I like. She'll tell me, like, do you know that this is a new thing? I'm like, honey, I don't know any of these things, and I'm so happy. I'm so away from that. But we'll joke yeah. around. We'll look like, man. I'm like, I'm so happy. I'm not out there anymore. I mean, I'm so happy. I have my wife mm-hmm. and everything for just you know, for my own everything, all of the reasons. But it's just one of those things where, like, when we we look at it for a second, we're like, yeah, no, I just don't understand. But um, yeah. is there hope? That's my last, that's the one question I have for you. Is there hope that it will change or is that the things will shift?
1: I think so. I mean, I think that in any situation, whether you're dealing with an addiction, an abusive relationship, depression, anxiety, whatever, we need to get to a breaking point. You know, we're really good at being comfortable as human beings. We're really good at kind of going along with things and adapting and surviving, but it has, we have to get to that point where less than optimal becomes unbearable before we change. And I think we've reached that point. I really do. We're just, we're all so exhausted. We're all so, so hurting, you know, and, and the other pieces, I really believe that healthy relationships is the key to, to healing our world on the global level too. You know, when we are spending our relationships, trying to deal with, Our wounds and the the ruptures that don't get repaired, Um, we don't have a lot left for ourselves, for our communities, for our our dreams. So I think if we can really focus on healing ourselves through our relationships and healing ourselves generally um, in terms of how we are in relationships, then it will have just the most wonderful ripple effect outwards in, in the rest of the world and society. So yes, I do believe there's hope. I've actually, part of the book is actually coming up. I've come up with a, what I, I call is pleasure-informed intimacy, uh, which is a, a kind of rubric for how we can condition ourselves for the kind of humanity and the kind of relationships and the kind of people we want to, to pass on to the next generation.
0: I love that. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. Um, how can people find you, get your book? Where is it located? Yeah. All that good stuff. So
1: my, my website is nishafair.com. I'm on Instagram at Nisha fair and the book is on Amazon. So I'm sure we can give, put all the links in the show notes. Um, and if you're on my website, there'll be a link to, to buy it there as well.
0: And for all the listeners, I will have all that in the show notes for you guys um nisha i greatly appreciate the work you're doing and 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 what you're up to i already i I had a feeling when i saw you come across and i was like yes this is gonna be a good combo and and it definitely (laughs) was i mean it's it's something that we need more of i mean there's so much uh uh, like i said in the beginning it's it's just much needed to dive deeper into these elements and and Mm -hmm. and all these different things so i just appreciate the work that you're doing
1: thank you and thank you so much for having me on it's been great to connect
0: Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing it with someone that you know could benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And Until next time, keep rocking and rolling.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,